Sensible Chat, the podcast committed to helping you learn positive money mindsets, destroy debt, reduce financial stress, and break the paycheck-to-paycheck cycle. Today, we're going to chat with Keisha Blair, author of Holistic Wealth, 32 Life Lessons to Help You Find Purpose, Prosperity, and Happiness. After class, Sensible Bobby will share tips on planning for the unthinkable. But right now, let's get to the nanny of the note, the deer of the doe. The competent custodian of cash. Here is Sensible Bobby. Thanks, Scott. I got a question for you guys, and I want you to really think about your answer. What would you do if you woke up tomorrow and your life was turned upside down? Something has changed. It's just one thing, but the ripple effect is going to be felt through your entire life. And you had zero warning. I want you to picture it and really feel the moment. Almost across the board, for any given upset that really has impact on our lives, we usually ask ourselves, what am I going to do? I don't know about you, but in those moments, I'm feeling overwhelmed, stressed, panicked, scared. This is the worst time to try and figure out the answer to the question, what am I going to do now? But thinking through this type of scenario ahead of time is the last thing we want to do, right? We'd rather push it out of our heads, pretend it won't happen, but it can, and it does. So what if you found yourself in that life-changing moment, asking yourself, what am I going to do now? And the answers were there for you. That'd be great, right? So where do you find those answers? Let's ask someone who's been there, someone who turned a tragedy into a guidebook. Okay, class. Sensible University is now in session. Today's guest professor is Keisha Blair, author of Holistic Wealth, 32 Life Lessons to Help You Find Purpose, Prosperity, and Happiness. Keisha is a trained economist with extensive experience in the public, private, and not-for-profit sectors. She's been featured in the New York Times, Harvard Business Review, Essence Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, and many other publications. Keisha, thanks so much for being our guest professor today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. You know, when most of us think about wealth, we think about a paycheck or investments or things like that. But your book is called Holistic Wealth. So I assume there's more to it than that. What exactly is holistic wealth? Yeah, you're right. It's much more than just a paycheck or your salary or financial resources. So when I refer to holistic wealth, and I define this in the book as more than just the paycheck and the financial resources, but a generous spirit, spiritual self-renewal, physical wealth, emotional wealth. And so it's the key building blocks that enable us to be holistically wealthy. So they're interdependent and it's hard to have one without the other. It's hard to have financial stability if we're not emotionally well. And it's hard to have financial stability if we're not physically well. So they're highly interdependent and they're all needed for us to have a good lifestyle. 
I got to tell you, I have never cried while reading a personal finance book before, but your story brought me to tears. Will you share why you wrote this book? Yeah, no, for sure. It was a very emotional process. So my husband died eight weeks after I gave birth to my second child. And at the time I was 31, so still very young. And I had a three-year-old and then at the time, the eight-week-old. And he had an illness that was very rare. None of us knew he had it. It's so rare that most doctors will never see it in their lifetime, only in textbooks. And it's so rare that 70% of cases are found on autopsy. And in my husband's case, it took one whole year for them to complete the autopsy. You know, and I, I talk more about that in the book about how tragic that was. But that was the inspiration for writing, because I think when something happens to you that's so out of the ordinary and, you know, just rocks your world in that way without any warning or foresight, it really puts you in a mood of questioning everything. And so I had to step back to kind of figure out the way forward and what this meant for me now and to kind of figure out the type of life I wanted moving forward because then it became clear to me that we really had to live with meaning and with purpose because you never know what can happen in life. And so that was the inspiration for the book. And I got started writing maybe a year afterwards and I never stopped. I never stopped until this was published. I mean, it was a long process, lots of ups and downs, but I'm happy that, you know, at least I got that out for sure. Yeah. And, and thanks for sharing your story with the world. I mean, it's I think it's made an impact on a lot of people and we want to get into more of what that is. But I just wanted to ask you, first of all, you know, after your husband died, you went on sabbatical to regroup and find your new footing in life. But there's a lot of people in your position with two kids and the sudden loss of an income that wouldn't have been able to do that financially and take the time to grieve. So tell us a little bit about how you were able to do that and why it's so important to take that time. Yeah, it's so important to be able to take that time to grieve and to figure out a way forward. And so I had decided to do that maybe a couple of years after he died. So it wasn't immediate. It wasn't like he died this week and I went the following week. I mean, I had to plan for it and figure out one, how I would pull it off with two kids, as you mentioned, and two, what it would mean for me long-term. And so in the book, that's why I have that whole chapter there, because I want people to get a sense of how to do this. And I rented out my home, number one, and used that income. I also planned ahead. I made sure everything was in place with my pension, my benefits. I actually contributed more to my pension just to make sure that I wasn't losing out. And I worked in the public sector. And so when you're in the public sector, you're actually in a good place to take the time like that. Because in Canada here, we have a benefit that when you have kids under five, that you can take a year without pay for childcare and for your personal needs. And so I took advantage of that benefit because I had two kids under five. So I met the criteria. And so I decided to do that. 
rented out my home and, you know, I saved in advance of that too and, and put things in place. And so that enabled me to really take it and not necessarily have to worry financially. Of course, as I state in the book too, like I stayed with relatives. I wasn't going off to, you know, some far unknown place where I didn't have a footing. Like I, sure. I went somewhere that I had friends, lots of family for support for both me and the kids. And that worked out well too. And that would be my advice. And, you know, we're, we're following up this book with a workbook, a personal workbook that will be released soon that goes into more details about how to really, you know, plan for the sabbatical. And in that workbook, it, it outlines things like that in terms of how you choose where to go, what place to choose and how much to save and things you'll be doing. And yeah, it was a combination of a lot of factors that I really thought about in depth before going. I think that's so great. And I can't wait to see that workbook because, you know, a lot of people in that place would have simply said, I don't have the time, the money, any of the resources to be able to do this. So I'm just going to go on with my daily life, not give myself that time to grieve, not give myself any time to regroup and and really be able to move on mentally for Mm -hmm. myself or my kids. And that's so important. And I think it's great that, you know, it's not like you had a million dollars sitting aside that you could just decide to up and leave, but you actually Mm -hmm. made the plans and found a way to do that because you knew it was what you needed. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, for sure. And I I couldn't have done it any different. Like, I I just don't see how I would have gotten over that period without taking the time. I mean, on a practical level with two young kids like that and, you know, that happening in your life, it takes more than just a week bereavement leave, which is the standard, you know, like yeah. I still don't know how the standard is just a week. It, it makes no sense to me practically. So in that vein, let's talk about the term that you coined, which is holistic wealth bank account. What is that? Yeah. So that's part of, you know, I came up with the whole concept and the framework for the book, which is the holistic wealth method and the holistic wealth method is a method whereby you think about your daily decisions. And in making those decisions, you think about this personal holistic wealth bank account. And with each decision that you make, you think about whether it's an addition or a depletion to your holistic wealth bank account. And, you know, like in the book, I talk about the fact that we make over 35,000 decisions per day. And you can imagine with every decision, no matter how small, how it adds up quickly when we're not being very thoughtful and mindful about whether it's an addition or a depletion to that holistic wealth bank account. And so if we go throughout life with this holistic wealth method or the mindset, then we're putting ourselves in a good position when we make our decisions mindfully and intentionally with this framework in mind in terms of this holistic wealth bank account. So it literally you know, theoretically operates like your regular bank account where you think about withdrawals and you think about adding. And the more we withdraw is the more we have the likelihood of becoming bankrupt. But the more we add to that holistic wealth bank account, the more we add to our lives and we put ourselves in a position where achieving our goals, both financially and personal and in terms of having an intentionally designed life. What are some of the dangers of living mindlessly? Because I think this is something that, you know, we all tend to live mindlessly. We just kind of go through the motions, but that can really impact us in a lot of ways. Tell me what you think about that. 
Yeah, no, it can. And and like every single lesson that I bring forth in this book stems from, you know, my experience because, you know, many of us think we have all the time in the world to live the type of life we want and we put it off. And it's the same thing with our finances. It's the same thing with spending time with family. Everything though has to be done very purposefully and very mindfully. And so in the book, I talk about advertisers they really hope that we are being mindless because when they put those ads on television and they convince us that we need something when we really don't, they're playing up on that mindlessness. They're really hoping that we stay in that state and that we just spend based on mindlessness. And in the book, I talk about being very mindful because whether it's spending or it's something else, We have to go about our lives being mindful of our decisions, every single one of them, because they add up. And even though, you know, some of them are tiny, we think, oh, you know, (laughs) that's small. They all compound. You know, I talk about compound interest in the book in relation to our bank account, you know, the holistic wealth bank account. And, you know, things compound. And so in living mindfully, we're ensuring that we have an intentionally designed life. And part of living mindfully is being strategic about our daily decisions. I mean, that's really what we're talking about here, right? So kind of the opposite of mindlessness is, you know, making those strategic decisions. So how do we go about focusing on making those strategic decisions instead of being mindless? What I've been realizing is that even in our spending, if we're being mindless, we're not going to set ourselves up to be financially resilient or resourceful because we think about our near-term needs and they're very important, like paying the bills, getting new tires on the car. And those are important, but those aren't the types of things that are going to set us up if tragedy strikes. It's the saving and the investing and being mindful in all of our decisions. So I love the two R's and I talk about them a lot and it's resourcefulness and resilience. And it's making sure that in our spending and in our saving and in our investing, we're setting up ourselves to be financially resilient and financially resourceful. So we have to have that balance because if we don't, we're really just satisfying the near term and we're not satisfying that criteria for resilience and resourcefulness, which is extremely important. It kind of goes to the fact that, of, you know, in your book, you wrote this statement and I loved it. It says financial security does not lie in your salary alone. And I think that's one of the biggest lies our society tells us that it's all about the paycheck. But even as you're talking about now, resourcefulness and resilience, those go far beyond the paycheck that you make. So if it's not the case that it's all about the paycheck, talk to me about where financial security actually comes from. A lot of it comes from leveraging the resources that we have. And so one of those resources is the paycheck. It's one of them, but it's knowing how to leverage that to invest wisely so that we can be financially resourceful and resilient. And you know what? It's funny because after my husband died and I had to figure out a way forward, I realized that I wouldn't be able to work for a while. So then the paycheck couldn't be in play anymore. I had to take the time off and I would need to take it without pay because there was just no other way. And so it became clear to me that the paycheck isn't the be all and end all when tragedy strikes, because you may need to be in a position where you can't draw down a paycheck. And then what gives you that resilience 
What gives you that resilience then is your investing and in your saving and in your extra sources of income and all these types of things. And I advocate for being on a path to financial independence because this is what helps you to do that. And even when, you know, we talk about me going on sabbatical, like some of that was brought into play because then I could draw down on the rental income. I could draw down on savings. And so that's what makes you financially resilient. And I think it's important to note that, again, it wasn't just about the money that you had, but the other resources that you had that went beyond the dollar that you have today. And I think it's so important. Your story really gets me because there's so many of us that don't think ahead about the what ifs, you know, and Mm -hmm. none of us want to think about tragedy striking, but you don't ever know when it's going to happen. And so you really kind of have to be prepared for that. I mean, as prepared as you can for the unexpected. You also talk about moral resources in the book. Tell me what moral resources are and why they're an important part of holistic wealth. Right. So my moral resources, I'm talking about the skills, relationships, collaboration, and knowledge that we need to also live a holistically wealthy life. Because in the book, I talk about economic resources, which is what we were talking about previously. You know, we talked about the salary and the paycheck and moral resources are the skills, relationships, collaboration and knowledge, which we also need to be resilient. And, you know, I spoke about the skills in terms of, you know, deploying those skills if we need to to find another job or to get, you know, like a higher salary or, or to start a business or the relationships that we have around us that we need to, you know, cultivate to be more resilient and as well the collaboration and knowledge. All of these work together and they're very, very important in terms of achieving holistic wealth. They're also key in overcoming adversity and having a life well-lived. And so it's easy to see how the building blocks come together and how they each play a role, you know, when we're thinking about both economic and moral resources. Now, we've already talked a little bit about financial freedom, but, you know, 78 percent of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck and thinking financial independence is simply just a pipe dream. What would you say to them? There are a lot of people who live paycheck to paycheck and who feel that financial independence is, as you said, it's a pipe dream. It's not attainable. It makes no sense to even think about it. But what I always remind myself is it's not just the end game. It's not just waking up that day and saying, yeah, I'm financially independent now. It's the path. It's the journey that gets us to that end game. And even if we get 90% there or we get 80% there or even 70, we're better than just living paycheck to paycheck. And so that journey and that goal is still very much in play and should be still a part of our mindset. Yeah, that's such an important point because, you know, there's so many people that focus on getting to retirement. But like you said, I mean, the journey is so much longer than retirement is. And I mean, if you want to live a fulfilled life, then yeah, I mean, it's more than just planning for the long term. It's planning for your best life day to day. And so in talking about that, There's a quote in your book that I love that says, strategy is about turning what you have into what you need to get what you want. Explain that for me. Yeah, no. And that was something I learned in my course at Harvard. And my professor used to love that because we used to talk about good strategizing a lot because 
when you talk about everyday people on the street, you know, like living paycheck to paycheck, it becomes how you strategize, you know, and my professor wrote a book called How David Sometimes Wins. And it speaks about that, you know, the little guy on the street who's living paycheck to paycheck, all he's thinking about is I don't have these resources. I'm not able to do this. But when we think about both our economic and our moral resources, the relationships, the skills, the collaboration, the knowledge, this is how good strategizing comes into play. And all of these come into play to enable us to have a good life. So in the book, I talk about good strategizing is correcting the imbalance to move the fulcrum on which the balance rests to get more leverage out of the same resources. So when we think about our resources, it's how we leverage them. It's how we use our knowledge, our skills, collaboration, relationships. And so all of that is important in terms of achieving holistic wealth. And you can see how they they play a role because if we want to get there, we're going to need all of these things. You know, it's not just relying on one without the other. Right. And and unfortunately, sometimes it takes things like what happened to you to make that clear. You know, your tragic story of such a deep loss is woven throughout your book, but it seems that part of the reason you did that was to illustrate how sometimes loss and obstacles can lead to growth. Am I on track with that? Yeah, no, we are very on track because sometimes when these things happen, that's when we get the wake up call. And I mean, I'm an economist, so I had a lot of things that were in place when he died. The life insurance, everything was in place, but there were still some learnings that came about. And I had the year, you know, I had time to think about how I wanted to come out of this and the story. Like I I wanted to have a message and that's so key in this book. I mean, any one of us can write about grief or tragedy or setbacks, but what's the framework that allows us to move forward? What's that framework that we have to apply in our lives now before anything strikes that will set us up for success regardless? And so that's what this is. And so that's why it becomes almost like a gift yeah. And, and another quote that struck me from your book is when you make goals, do so knowing there will be detours ahead. And I think that's really vital to understand because personally, I had a role model tell me early in life that you can plan for everything, but things never go the way you expect. So there's no point in planning. And it took me a long time to stop thinking that way. So Tell me why it's so important to go into your planning, preparing for detours and how we actually can do that. You know, it's funny. I I talk about that in the chapter on goals because I realize that, you know, when we speak about goals and you'll, you'll see lots of articles about, you know, that smart acronym. Yeah. And it's great for measuring goals. Be specific, be measurable. It's good for that. But what about when a significant detour happens in your life that you're not expecting? And then suddenly that SMART acronym isn't helpful anymore. Right. It's just like, well, what do I do? And so that's why I talk about planning with detours up ahead and what you would do in that event. Because then that's how we can even set up the resilience resourcefulness framework again when we think okay if i don't achieve that goal or if a detour comes 
how am I going to be resilient enough to overcome that detour? And how am I going to be resourceful enough to overcome that detour? And so it became clear to me as I was writing and in my own experience that, yeah, no, it's about big detours. Let's plan for these and let's see, you know, whether we have an option B or C, how we're going to set ourselves up, you know, when these detours come. Yeah. And I think that's vitally important because even if one of those big detours never comes, you know, it's just those things are things that we don't want to think about. And so they hang over our head with all this fear. But if you can actually face it head on and make a plan for it, then you can live without the fear regardless of whether it happens or not. Right. And so for most of us, it will happen probably over and over again. Yeah. Um, if we think about a job loss, an illness, maybe even not like a critical one, but something where we have to stay home for a while. And then we think about two. Yeah, there's death in there. There's all sorts of things. And this is why it's so important when we think about these detours, how we plan ahead to set ourselves up so that we can conquer them and, and really move forward. And part of how we can plan for these detours is, you know, not having debt because when you've got debt and you're living paycheck to paycheck, it's hard to plan for what's ahead when you're trying to make up for what's behind you. Right. So yes, exactly. Yeah. So, and, and I thought it was really interesting that in your book, you wrote paying off debt requires a financial strategy and often sacrifices in service of freedom because a lot of us believe that there is no strategy. I mean, you just keep making payments until it's all paid. And there are some that actually believe you can't ever be debt free. So what's the point in a strategy? What is your answer to that? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think we've gotten to the point as a society where debt has just become so much a part of us. You know, I think about the holiday season and how much money some of us spend. And when we think about that spending, we're not thinking about the tomorrows. And, you know, sometimes it's just like, yeah, you know, I want to have fun with my family. I want to have a great holiday season, which is fine. That's great. But let's think about what comes after that. And so that's where the strategy comes into place. And that's where pre-planning and allocating, and I talk about allocative efficiency in the book a lot too, you know, with how we're allocating our, our resources and our paycheck and, you know, whatever monthly income or sources of income we have coming in. Because if we make it balanced, you know, if yeah. we have a good strategy in place, then we'll be so much more confident. And all of those fears, you know, that you mentioned will whittle away because we'll know that we're in good standing. And that's what I want for everyone to be able to say, well, you know what, like if, if something happens, I'm in a good place. And I know my family is too. And that, you know, makes us sleep well at night. Yeah. And the holidays are such a great example because if you plan ahead for the holidays, then, you know, it's so much better because you get to spend and not go into debt and it's better for your pocketbook. But for me, because I struggled with that for a long time, and when I finally got to the point that I started planning ahead for the holidays, I found that they were so much more fun because I could actually spend without the stress. So I could actually enjoy the holidays for what they were supposed to be instead of, you know, every time I turned around buying a gift because I felt pressured to do so, but then stressing about how I was going to pay it off or how much money I didn't have and all those things. It, it just makes life crazy. So it's so much less stressful and so much more fun, you know, if you can take that away and do the pre planning. It is for sure. And sets us up for having that intentional design around our lives and feeling more in control. 
we're just beginning a new year, so it's a great time to talk about what you call New Year's revolutions instead of resolutions. What is that? You know, I contemplated while writing this book how often we we make decisions in a cyclical way. Every year we make the same resolutions, right. you know, and we break them. <laughs> and by May, nobody's talking about them anymore. It's as if we didn't make them in the first place. And I saw the word on my best friend's Instagram account and I thought, bingo, that's what we need. It's not about resolution so much more. It has to be about creating a revolution in our lives because that's what's going to take a mindset change right. and creating that type of habitual change in our lives where it's not just for a time, it's really making a revolution to start something new. And I feel that's important in a new year. And I feel it's important to really set ourselves up for the rest of our lives, thinking about a revolution instead of resolutions, because we know how revolutions are. They're dramatic and they're drastic, you know? Right. And life is never the same afterwards, right? (laughs) Exactly. We we feel like we've won a war. We've come out of battle and we can declare a victory. And I want us to declare that victory. And if we think about it that way, you know, like you get goosebumps because you're like, yeah, you know, I'm doing this in my life and I'm being intentional. I'm conquering this and I know I can do it. So that's kind of where that came from. And so part of that, I assume, would be flipping the script like you talk about in the book. What do you mean by flipping the script and how do we do that? Yeah, no, it's it's also very important. Like, you know, in chapter two, I talk about, you know, the naysayers and I talk about, you know, these subliminal messages that we get throughout our lives that it's mostly negative. And when you go through a setback or, or any type of loss, it becomes even worse, you know, because then you can get saddled with, well, what did I do wrong? Did I do enough? And, you know, you start to have regrets and sadness around different circumstances. And so if we develop that script, then we go throughout our lives with that negative script. And that's counter to achieving holistic wealth. And in the book, you'll see a whole narrative around me saying how I identify when that negative script is starting to play. It's like a song or a movie. And I talk about recognizing the signs and knowing when you're slipping down the rabbit hole and pulling yourself back and saying, no, I'm not going there. I need to have a positive script. And so it requires mental exercise. And, you know, there's tools and resources like journaling and all these things that help us to track and to write down what our script is. And, you know, like when I talk about having a personal mission and in line with our values and all that type of thing in the book, that's what I'm talking about. Because all of this is interwoven and helps us to create the script that we want for our lives. So many important tips and resources in your book that, you know, I was excited because I learned so much from it, just different ways of thinking about things. But also it feels like having your own personal coach, because when you get into those situations where you're not sure what to do, you can refer to this book and it really kind of guides you along whatever you're struggling with at that point. Yeah, no, for sure. And even for me, I go back to the book all the time. Like it's it's a tremendous resource. And I think it's so well organized that we kind of have that, as you said, that coach at your fingertips that addresses these things. 
Very important. Now, I think this is a good way to wrap up because this line from your book is at the core of what I believe. And I think it's vital for anyone to believe if they want to be financially free. You wrote, quote, the truth is few people become wealthy from earning a salary alone. Once the job and title are gone, a cycle of poverty and hopelessness ensues, end quote. But this is what it seems like society teaches us to believe. So if it's not about the salary, and I know we've talked about this, but this just really kind of wraps up the whole idea of this. So again, if it's not about the salary, what is it about? And that's a great question. The salary is a part of having that financial resilience and resourcefulness because it's it's one resource. But I feel like, as you said, we've been brought up to believe that that's the be all and end all of resources. And it's not. Because once it's gone, whether through job loss or any type of setback, we're left with nothing. And especially if we haven't built up, you know, the deposits in that personal holistic wealth bank account. And this is critical to having a life well lived because it's not the salary alone. It's all of those resources. It's the rest of the economic resources, your investments, your savings, and it's your moral resources your relationships, your skills, collaboration, and your knowledge. And so when I talk about constantly learning and lifelong learning, that's also another chapter in the book. That's what I'm talking about. There are some things that enable us to have, you know, increased like compound interest. And a lot of those moral resources and the economic ones too, do compound in interest. And so that's why I want us to think about these things in totality, in a holistic way, so that we really set up ourselves for being resilient and resourceful, because it all comes into play. I think if we place too much emphasis on the salary alone, we're really not doing that. It's almost like putting your eggs in one basket and not having anything else to rely on. And I just think in this, you know, world with uncertainty and global political tensions and just, you know, the world we're living in, I think we'd all agree that that's no way to live. I think we need a new mindset. I think we need a new framework. And I think we need to define that and to redefine that for ourselves. And I think we need to move forward with that type of framework so that we set up ourselves for resilience and for resourcefulness. And I think holistic wealth is a really great part of that because financial freedom looks different to everybody. Rich looks different to everybody. Wealthy looks different to everybody. And it's more about what you want out of life and the resources, one of them being money, but not the only one that's going to get you there. And that's really the whole crux of this, right? Exactly. It's all of these things that we've been discussing that, you know, you mentioned rich. Yes, it's so unique in terms of how we define and how we feel rich and how we feel wealthy. And I know for a lot of us, you know, when we die, we're not going to want the title and the paycheck on our tombstone. We're going to want to be remembered for something bigger and greater than that. And it's going to surround our families and our relationships much more then it's going to surround our title because nobody puts a title on a tombstone. And so I want to emphasize that we need to focus on the totality of these things in our lives and not neglect one area because, you know, we feel that this is somehow more important than the other area. It's very important that we think about things in a holistic way and that we set up ourselves with that 
holistic wealth framework in mind where, you know, life in itself is more enjoyable. It's more purposeful. And we see prosperity, not in terms of just our paycheck, but in terms of a society and our, our unique contribution. And that's what I'm getting at in this book. The book is called Holistic Wealth, 32 Life Lessons to Help You Find Purpose, Prosperity, and Happiness. And Keisha, I really appreciate all your time today. How can people get a hold of you or read the book or read more of your writings and certainly find out about this workbook that you've got coming up? Right. So my website is KeishaBlair.com. There are lots of resources there. Readers can get a hold of me there too. can join the newsletter and email me there. I love to hear from readers and I love to hear how people are going about achieving their journeys towards holistic wealth. And I'm on social media as well. Feel free to connect with me there. It's at Keisha O'Blair for both Instagram and Twitter and Facebook as well. And so I'm hoping that I will hear about personal journeys and how people are doing. I hope you'll hear that too, because you've written a fabulous book here. And I think it gives a lot of us hope and resources that we really need to live a better life. So Keisha, thank you again so much for being with us today. And the website again is KeishaBlair.com. And we're going to link to all of her resources in there. Keisha, thanks again for being our guest today. Thanks for having me. It was great being here. A big sensible thank you to our guest professor, Keisha Blair, author of Holistic Wealth, 32 Life Lessons to Help You Find Purpose, Prosperity, and Happiness. Visit her website at KeishaBlair.com. Keisha is living proof that no matter what happens in our lives, no matter how bad things turn, we, you, have the power to change them, bounce back from any tragedy, and dig ourselves out of any hole. Money is only one of many resources that make up holistic wealth. We are not victims. Are you ready to declare your financial revolution? It's time to rise up. It's time to take control. And it's time to put an end to your fear. If something bad happens to you, you have two choices. You can crumble. You can talk about how unfair the world is and fall into despair. Waiting hoping for someone to pick you up. Or you can get up, you can dust yourself off, and you can get back to the life you love. Now, I'm not saying you have to do it on your own, not by a long shot. This is the time to ask for help. I'm just saying you are the director, the delegator. Have a plan that includes pulling from your various resources, and you decide intentionally when and how to pull from each one. When we're in the midst of a tragedy or an emergency, it's really hard to think clearly. We make poor decisions because we're scared. I know this is uncomfortable, but try this exercise with me and see if you feel more calm at the end. The goal is to reduce stress and remove fear as much as we possibly can. So I want you to think about the scenario that scares you the most. Is it a natural disaster? Losing your job? losing a significant other. What's the worst thing you can imagine happening to you? Think this through in detail. What do you need in that moment that you don't have? I mean, really need. And how can you get these things? What could you do right then in that moment to start putting the pieces back together? Let's take a job loss. 
If you lost your job, what would you need? Number one, money. Where could you get it? From your emergency fund, ideally. This account should have three to six months worth of expenses to sustain you through a major event like this where your money supply has been cut off. If you don't have an emergency fund, now is a great time to start building one. And I know it's overwhelming to save for three to six months worth of expenses. The amount can seem insurmountable, but take it one step at a time. Save one month ahead for groceries, then save one month ahead for the electric bill, and on and on. Small steps will get you from point A to point B, and even if you don't end up with the full amount you need, some is always better than none in a dire situation. If you need some help getting started, go to sensiblechat.com and check out my blog post, 10 Surprising Ways to Save Money. You can also get money from unemployment. Take the time now to find out how to apply for it, how long it takes to kick in, and how much you might expect to get. The last part is critical because you may be surprised at the amount unemployment will pay, and that might encourage you to build your emergency savings fund. Either way, you're going to want to cut back on your spending as much as possible so you can stretch your financial resources as far as possible. Make a list now of all the things you could cut back on if you had to and how much it would save you. What if your financial resources weren't enough to cover your necessities? You need to make sure you can keep the roof over your head, the lights on, and everyone fed. Some options you have are communicating with your landlord and electric company to see if you can get a grace period while you're struggling. Sometimes it's surprising what you can accomplish just by communicating. As for food, keep a list of food banks in your area that you could turn to. If you belong to a church, reaching out to them is certainly an option to think about. And here's a phone number to keep handy, 211. Or you can go to 211.org. Either way, this is a national resource for emergency assistance, including food, medical services, housing, utilities, and more. Also, I just read about another great resource, especially if you're considering a payday or other type of predatory loan. It's the International Association of Jewish Free Loans, and they provide interest-free loans for those in dire need of money for food and shelter. The website is iajfl.org. Don't forget about your relationships. Who can you reach out to for help? This is not the time to be proud. When life kicks you, you can stay on the ground and keep rolling downhill, or you can take the hand of the person offering help to stop your free fall. And together, you can climb back up that hill. The faster you get back up, the faster you'll be in a position to return the favor or lend a hand to someone else in need. There is nothing wrong with accepting a hand up, as long as you don't turn it into a hand out. So what else would you need if you lost your job? Take the time right now to write all of this down. Brainstorm and create a step-by-step plan you could start following right away if you lost your job. Creating a plan goes a long way towards cutting out the fear and makes for a faster recovery. What about a natural disaster? In addition to tapping emergency savings, what else would you need? A plan to get you and the entire family to safety, including your pets. Also, easy access to vital paperwork or documents, including insurance. I'm just throwing a few things out there, but really take the time to think this through and make a list of everything you would need, plus a step-by-step action plan to follow if a natural disaster ever happened. 
What if, God forbid, you unexpectedly lose your significant other? What would you do? Obviously, the toughest scenario to have to think through, but also the most important. We take life and health for granted until the unthinkable happens. But if it did, would you have what you needed to get through it? If your significant other is laid up in a hospital with a serious issue, all you want to focus on is being with them. And if they've passed away, sometimes all you can focus on is putting one foot in front of the other. So that is not the time to figure out where the insurance information is, how to access financial records, or how you and your children will survive without their income. Think this through now and talk about it. Do you have enough and the right types of insurance? Are beneficiaries up to date? Do you know how to access all the accounts? Beyond financial, what assistance would you need? even if it's just someone to care for your kids or bring you food while you recover from shock. Think of all the what-ifs and create a step-by-step plan and resource list so if you ever need it, you're prepared enough to stay in control and direct your path without having to think rationally in the midst of tragedy. I know these are not fun things to think about and plan for, but it's so important. Personally, I am a huge worrier. I worry about everything to the point I can make myself sick, and I hate that. But what do I always do when I'm worrying? I'm asking, what if? And I'm fearing all the bad things that could happen. I spent so much time doing that and then trying to push it out of my mind because it was scary and overwhelming to think about. So I worried and I asked, what if? But I didn't take the time to answer those questions or make a plan. So the worry kept coming. I finally tried thinking it through, answering those what-if questions. And you know what? It wasn't near as daunting as I'd always imagined, because now I had an answer for those questions. It may be uncomfortable, but it wasn't anything I couldn't deal with and get past if I had to. And now that I have resources and a plan, I don't have to worry anymore, because I finally dealt with it. My advice? Deal with the fear. Address it head on. If you fear it, plan for it. It's made my life so much less stressful, and I know it can do the same for you. I found a PDF called Disasters and Financial Planning that goes through a lot of these scenarios, gives you resources, and even provides room to write down some notes. There's a link to it on the resources page at sensiblechat.com and in the show notes for this episode. If you have resources that have been helpful in these kind of situations, I want to hear about them. Email me, bobby, B-O-B-B-I, at sensiblechat.com, or leave a comment on my Facebook page so we can share them with as many people as possible. And if you need help brainstorming or creating emergency plans, reach out to me. I'm happy to help. All my contact info is available at sensiblechat.com. That's sensible with a C. Thanks for listening. And until next time, keep spending and saving the sensible way. 
That does it for this episode of Sensible Chat with your host, Sensible Bobby. Links for all the resources mentioned can be found in the show notes for this episode at sensiblechat.com. That's sensible with a C. While you're there, find your favorite app to be sure and never miss a show. On social media, look for us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you need help with your budget or want to share your thoughts, reach out to Sensible Bobby through the contact page at sensiblechat.com. That's sensible with a C. Thank you.